welcome to a brand new episode of The Partial Historians. I am Dr. G, and sitting beside me, looking historically radiant, Dr. Rad. Pleasure to be here. Woohoo! And we are about to embark an examination of 454 BCE. Yes, we've been tracing the journey of Rome from the founding of the city, and last year, 455... Woo! Was a doozy. What a year. Yeah. Dr. G had a ton of information which was nowhere to be found in my account. I'm reading Livy. She's reading Dionysius of Halicarnassus. And we're trying to piece together what might be really happening in the early Republic of Rome. It's a big issue. Our narrative sources are not that helpful sometimes. I mean, really, I could say we don't really know who the Senate was. We don't really know who the patricians were. We don't really know who the plebeians were. It's all very hard to piece together. Uh, But we're going to do our best. (laughs) So, Dr. G, very brief recap if we can, because 455 was a very long year that required two episodes. Where have we left off? What is the situation that Rome is facing? There is a sense in which the conflict is really coming to a head between what seems to be the elite Roman citizenry who hold on to all of the power, Mm. the patricians, and just about everybody else who our sources tend to refer to as the plebeians. Mm -hmm. And what this has meant is that things have reached a head which has seemed to be embodied in the person of this guy known to us as the Roman Achilles. Yeah. Uh, His name is Sicius Dentatus. Mm. And he has really pushed a couple of uh, key concerns of the plebeians uh, in a way that has really generated a lot of emotional impact. One is about land allotment. Mm -hmm. um, And the other seems to be about this relationship between the patricians and spoils of war. Mm -hmm. And all of this is swirling around the broader issue of... Uh, transparency at law. So we're heading closer and closer to a codification of the Roman law. But we're not quite there yet. No, absolutely Um, not. But Sicius has been rewarded. Yeah, he definitely has. By becoming the tribune. (laughs) He seems very fitted for the job, if I may say so. Yes. Yes. Well, we're we're in a slightly weird position right now because at the end of 455, you had this account of Sicius taking it upon himself in kind of revenge, I suppose, for being sent on a suicide mission in a battle, uh, destroying all the spoils of war, which doesn't just mean the physical weapons and that sort of thing, but it meant the animals and the people on the Aquian side, and then going back to Rome, bypassing the consuls, getting there first, telling this story that the consuls had ordered him to do that, so that the time they get home uh, and, and face the Romans, there is this, this idea that they had ordered the destruction of all the spoils, and therefore all the wealth from this particular campaign. Whereas in my account, it is totally that the consuls decided that the treasury was in such a bad state that they had to sell the spoils of war. And this made them unpopular with the army. Now, the other detail at the end of 455 for me was that this gave the tributes an in for impeaching the consuls before the plebs. Mm. Okay, and that's, that's basically where Livy had left off. Where I pick up for 454 is the old consuls, so the consuls that we were talking about the previous year, being brought to trial by the tribunes. So it's a fairly effortless segue (laughs) for Livy. And the really interesting thing is, 
the people who are named as being the tribunes who are bringing them to account are not Sicius. Okay, I've got the consul Romilius being brought to trial by Gaius Calvius Cicero, or Cicero. <laughs> and then I've got Peturius being brought to trial by Lucius Aelianus, an aedile of the plebs. Hmm. Okay, so no mention of Sicius once again. I think the uh, refusal of Livy to talk about Sicius is frankly a weakness <laughs> in his historical account. And again, I don't have a lot of detail here, Dr. G. All I get told is that they were found guilty, which really annoyed the patricians, um, and that the price is that they are fined. So Romilius is fined 10,000 asses, and Venturius is fined 15,000 asses. Right. So, yeah, I, I, I can't see Sicius coming into this at all. Oh, well, prepare to be amazed. All right, all right, go for it, go for it. <laughs> I, I think everybody at this point needs to be thankful that Dionysius of Halicarnassus exists as a source because, boy, these years are much more fun when he's around. That's for sure. Actually, I, you know, I've kind of jumped ahead a little bit because I've been talking so much about the ex-consuls. I haven't allowed, I haven't allowed either of us to talk about who the new consuls are, although they seem completely irrelevant for the first part of my narrative. So I should perhaps say that for the consuls of 454, Dr. G, I have one Spurius Tarpeius, and I have also got one Aulus Aternius. Ah, yes. Okay. So I also have Spurius Tarpeius. Mm. Um, Son of Marcus, grandson of Marcus, mm -hmm. Montanus, Capitolinus. Yes. Massive yeah. patrician. Absolutely. And then I have who Dionysius refers to as Aulus Terminius. Oh. Um, and that gets corrected quite swiftly when you go to Broughton. Yes. Um, and have a look at his lists of um, people in magistracies to Aulus Aternius. Mm -hmm. um, Son of, we're not sure. Uh, grandson of, we're not sure. <laughs> Various Fontanalis. Uh, but he's a patrician. Another he? patrician. Yes. Two patricians. Yes. Um, and the characteristics that Dionysius ascribes to these two is basically that they've seen what's happened in the previous year and they're relatively afraid of the security of their position. Yeah, I think that actually shows great common sense. Yes, mm. yes. They are alarmed mm -hmm. and they're deciding to... Play it safe by working with the tribunes. Okay. <laughs> Which is convenient because this means Sicius, enter stage left. Excellent. <laughs> so Sicius uh, is definitely interested in pursuing Titus Romilius at trial. Well, Romilius was the consul that he was dealing with in the previous episode who sent him on this seemingly suicidal suicide mission. Yeah, yes. yeah. Um, and he decides to bring him to trial on the charge of injuring the state. Ooh. Uh, yes. And so that happens. Um, it's the first thing he does, apparently, after the inaugural sacrifices for him becoming tribune. Um, that's out of the way. And he's like, I have... <laughs> As my first act as tribute of plebs. Sir Sicius, what do you want to do this year? <laughs> Tell us about your platform. <laughs> What's your agenda? It has one word, Romilius. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. There will be vengeance yes. through the court. 
And I also get reference to Lucius Alienus, mm-hmm. who was previously a tribune of the plebs in 455 mm-hmm. and is now classified as an Adile. That's the same as in my account. Finally, some agreement. Yeah, some yeah. agreement. Yeah. Um, and an Adilus plebis is somebody who is a assistant to the tribunes. Mm-hmm. Um, and they go around and do some of the dirty work on the ground. Well, God knows they must have their hands full during the conflict of the order. They do. And yeah. we don't hear much about them, but now we've got one. Yeah. Um, and he summons Gaius Veturius, the other consul of mm. 455, on a similar trial. Mm. So we've got both of the previous consuls going before the courts for injuring the state. So, once again, it seems like our destination is the same, but the journey is <laughs> so very different. <laughs> Yeah, different weaving paths. Yeah. Um, And in order to facilitate these trials going well, because it seems like the tribunes have had trouble in the past with the patricians interfering with the gathering of citizens. Well, yes. Yes. um, They call in literally everybody. As in to, like, physically be there? Yeah, literally everyone to be physically there. So people, farmers from the nearby uh, lands... Um, anybody who's got a claim to being a citizen of Rome in any capacity, mm. high, low, anywhere in between. So many people turn up that the forum is overflowing into the streets around it. Um, so, And this gives us an insight that it's pretty rare for most of the Romans to be present yes. at, at political things in the first place sure. because they don't have the space for it. <laughs> and when everybody's there, it no longer works. Well, practically, <laughs> it doesn't seem necessary all of the time, but yes. <laughs> mm. First off the bat, it's the trial of Romilius. Excellent. It's going to happen. Um, he's charged with acts of violence. Surprise, surprise. <laughs> <laughs> he's also embroiled, apparently, in a plot um, against Sicius and his cohort. Well, yeah, of course. <laughs> I, I mean, if by plot you mean hates his guts, yes. Yes, yes. Sicius yeah. yeah. brings out some key witnesses. And, <laughs> and it's reputed that the most moving of all of the witnesses is a young patrician. Really? A young patrician, yes. His name is Spurius Virginius. He's okay. a young man. Yeah. And he happens to be friends with a certain uh, soldier, a young man. They're of uh, comparable age. They're yes. friends. One's a plebeian, one's a patrician. It's a tale for the ages. <laughs> West Side Story. When you're a jet, you're a jet. <laughs> Precisely. Um, so he's friends with a soldier, a young soldier called Marcus Achilles. Okay. Yes, that sounds like a tribune of the plebs to you. Yeah. I mean, yes, there are some overlapping names going on yeah, here. Yeah, I was going to say, that name um, sounds very familiar. <laughs> and as it happens... Uh, when he learns, like, so Achilles is serving with his father in Sicius's legion of old men. Oh. That's how this is going down. Yeah, that's, this is the basis of the story. So, right. okay. so for the context, Achilles is one of the young ones in this legion of old dudes. Yes. He's there with his dad. Okay. Um, because he's, you know, youthful and in training, apparently. Sure. Things like this. Anyway, he's serving with his father. Mm-hmm. Fair enough. Anyway... When Virginius learns about this suicide mission mm. that Romilius is going to send this legion on, mm. he's a, first of all fearful for the life of his friend. He's okay. like, my mate's going to get killed. This is... Ah, uh, okay, I see how this is going to happen. This yeah. is a real problem. Yeah, yeah. As a patrician, he approaches the consuls. Oh, okay. Yeah. Um, he talks to his uncle, yep. Aulus Virginius, 
who is a legate on the campaign. And, and another name I recognise. Yes. Yeah. And they go together to the consuls. Yeah. And Virginia Senior is like, listen to this young man. My, my patrician buddy here, you know. Um, young whippersnapper is going to make a great name for himself. Um, and and the he consuls... takes off his leather jacket <laughs> and he says... <laughs> Please don't kill my friend. Could you spare... Uh, Marcus Aquilius, mm-hmm. um, would it be possible? Because this seems like a suicide mission and he's a good man and he doesn't deserve to die like this. Yeah. And I'm quite scared for his well-being. Would Let you... me guess. Romilius says a big fat no. <laughs> Not even that. Yeah. Um, but um, this message, this sort of like attempt to intercede for his friend, mm-hmm. um, really doesn't work out quite the way he expects it to because then his friend is sort of dragged before the consuls. And the consuls like, well, you know, your, your, your mate over here wants you to not be in the battle. What do you think of that? And really puts Achilles on the spot. Yeah. And Achilles is like, I want to show my filial duty to my father. Um, I will go wherever he is sent. Mm. Um, it's very nice of my, my friend um, Spurious to step in here and... And try to help out. I didn't know anything about this. (laughs) (laughs) But as everybody knows, I need to serve with my dad. Mm. And I need to go where he goes. And I'm part of this legion. Um, Now there's a father-son relationship. (laughs) Or there is a young man, fearful for his life, having been brought before the consuls. (laughs) Who's like, if I don't say I'm going to do my duty, they are literally going to kill me. I heard what he said to sick you. (laughs) (laughs) You're like, wait a minute. Um, So everybody... It, this story is told in as part of the trial and everybody feels for him and it's a really emotional moment because it shows a bridge between patricians and plebeians that the consuls won't permit this bridge to be made. Mm. You know, it's the consuls that stand in the way of it. Yeah. And uh, then the Achilles are called into the trial as well, father and son, yeah, to speak as well. Yeah. And the plebeians are crying by the end of it, you know, because it's this tale where they go into battle and they think they're going to die and, you know, they come out of the, the other they side because of Sikius. They both survive, yeah. but it's traumatic. Yeah. And, you know, the things they have to do on that battle well, are yeah. horrifying. I was actually thinking about that. I mean, the trauma of being a soldier at this point in time. Yeah. I mean, I don't think I could just slaughter X amount of horses just because. Yeah, it's yeah. huge. Yeah. What Sikius asked of this legion is massive. Yeah, definitely. Um, and it's no wonder that everybody's crying. Yeah. So then they're like, okay, well, it's Romilius' turn to speak. <laughs> Strapping myself in for disappointment. <laughs> um, he is neither deferential. Of course not. Um, but haughty and boastful um, of the irresponsible power of his majesty. Um, he's pretty pleased with himself, actually. Yeah. Um, he's like, I did what I had to do. I'm a consul. I make the rules. It's a battle. You do what I say. It's the way it is. I hate to say it, but he's not exactly wrong. <laughs> <laughs> he's apparently found so guilty that every tribe votes to condemn him. <laughs> Which is massive as well, I have to say. Every tribe voting to condemn a consul. When, That's big. When actually, he's not 
He's just doing things that consoles do. Yeah, I mean, I guess... I mean, it's not great that he did them. They're not just looking at his treatment of Sukiyo, are they? They're looking at the whole issue of the spoils as well. I mean, this is is presumably the big thing that convicts him, not really his, you know, the fact that, you insulted Sukiyo, you bastard! (laughs) (laughs) They're like, you destroyed all of the plunder! Yeah. Yes, so he gets fined, as you say, 10,000 asses. Okay. Which is not a lot of money. Not a lot of money for a patrician, Mm. uh, really. So, never mind. Mm. Uh, <laughs> Dionysius himself inserts himself into the narrative personally in this moment. Okay. Yeah. Uh, one of those moments where it's like, well, you know, if we're talking about what I think about all of this, um, he's like, I think Sikius has a plan. <laughs> and I was like, dude, you're writing this history. You always knew he had a plan. <laughs> you're constructing his Also, character. you created his plan. <laughs> he's very possibly fictional. <laughs> <laughs> I think you made up his plan. Uh, but yes, he's like, I think there's a bigger plan here mm. uh, where he's trying to yield some kind of particular result by having such a low penalty involved. Is this the thing from before where they're going for a minimal penalty just because they want to secure you know, a conviction? Is it the same? I think Dionysius is trying to foreshadow something that's going to happen later in the narrative. Yeah, okay. But... It's not really that clear either. Mm, I do have some suggestion here that part of the purpose of the character of Sikius, so notably absent from <laughs> Livy's far superior account, um, is something to do with actually the passing of a law um, about the regulation of legal fines. Okay, I believe it is called the Eternian Tarpeian Law. Um, and yeah, that potentially that is partly what this is about with the fines. Yeah, so, yeah. and this is kind of positioning the consuls to make the right decision in terms of putting the law together. Um, yes, exactly. And I think you might be onto something there because that mm. is definitely something that's going to come up a little bit later on okay. in this account. Um, so we get this dramatic account of Romilius's trial, mm. and then we get a very quick. Well, Vitruvius was also found guilty, and he was fined fifteen hundred asses. Fifteen thousand. Fifteen thousand. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> okay. Fifteen hundred. Yeah. What, <laughs> what a, <deal>. a bug! <laughs> <laughs> yeah. No, he gets fined more, um, despite the fact that the focus has really been on Romilius in the narrative. Mm. Why does Vitruvius get fined more? I have some questions. I was going to say Romilius is the only one we've had any detail about in your account. He's not. He's only a name in my account. Like, I, I don't even have any details about his actions apart from the fact that he sold the spoils. So what is going on? What is going on? Because even Dionysius has the account that Vitruvius pays a higher fine. Yeah, absolutely. Um, but there's no detail around why that might be the case. Um. <laughs> Look, I should say, in spite of the fact that I have somewhat been questioning the accounts we've given... I'm not saying that they don't have a difficult job putting all of this together. Clearly, there are some gaps. <laughs> there are some gaps. Yeah. Um, and it's not really clear that Dionysus Halconassus is interested in clearing those gaps up either, because we just kind of move on. No, well, I mean, I mean, this is the thing with both Livy and Dionysus. Dionysus. They, they're obviously trained in terms of, you know, how to write, you know, particularly in Dionysius, he's very concerned with showing off his rhetorical oh, yes. abilities and that sort of thing. But 
are they trained in what we would be what we would consider to be historical research methods no no, no. they are not and and also, I'm not denying the fact that in their day and age, before the internet, etc., having access to material would also be way harder. And then compiling that information, all that kind of stuff. So I'm not questioning the fact that this is a difficult job, and therefore, I feel like they often go for the slightly more simple way of seeing things, or seeing things through their own time, because it makes sense to them. And they just don't necessarily see... <laughs> the discrepancies that we see. Yeah, and we're like, how do they think about time as well in the sense that, like, do they have a sense of things being radically different from time to time? Mm. It's not necessarily clear. I think their conceptualization of time and the way that they think about the past is probably very different from the way that we conceive of it. Absolutely. So how would they write about it would also be radically shaped by that. Definitely. Even though we can't tell what that is. Well, the whole purpose of, of writing these works is not for the same reason that most historians, uh, not for entirely the same reason that most historians today would be writing. Uh, as we've highlighted in some of our previous accounts, history has obviously instructive purposes. It's not that, it's not that histories these days don't have instructive purposes, but I think more at the fore these histories have certain kinds of instructive purposes in terms of teaching people about morality, who to, whose example to follow, who's not to. They want to talk about the qualities of what it is to be a Roman or be a this or be a that. You know, there's a lot of stuff going on there which is a bit more at the forefront than I think it would be for modern historians who are trying to be a bit more objective, yeah. I suppose. And every so often their agendas do get revealed like yeah pop to the surface yeah and oh we're gonna see one of those in this episode oh, excellent yes okay <laughs> foreshadowing So that is reminding me of my names again. Spurius Tarpeius or the Saturnius. Oh, so they put together this law that we call the Lex Saturnia Tarpeia. Yeah. And note that it's named after the consuls, guys. I said this in the previous episode. That's how you name a law. <laughs> that is how you name a law, and yeah. it makes sense yeah. because then you're like, it's those guys. <laughs> we can connect it to them. And it is about uh, allowing magistrates to find citizens. But it also sets some maximum penalties on the fines that can be applied. Mm -hmm. So this is to do with um, cases of disrespect, um, illegal attempts against authority. And there is to be an upper limit of a fine for this kind of thing, which involves two oxen and 30 sheep. It doesn't sound like an awful lot. I mean, not for... For your average person, of course, yeah, oxen are very valuable. But, I mean, for your average elite person... For a patrician, I don't think this would be any skin off their nose. No. Um, for a plebeian in the street, probably. Mm. Uh, this so. is interesting because, yeah, I feel like my... I feel like my consuls are a little... 
a little bit nervous at first, obviously, because they, they're now aware that something could happen. But Libby doesn't mention anything about this. He just goes straight to talking about, like, the law about the laws. Ah, yes. Yeah. Well, the next thing that happens, according mm. to Dionysius, is that there is then a consideration of in the Senate of the law which the tribunes pressed to have drawn up that should bind all the Romans alike and be observed forever. Now this seems to be a reference to the law about the laws. Definitely. And I think we've been talking about this so much that sometimes I think the meaning of this um, can get a bit lost in the grand scope of things. But really when we're talking about the conflict of the orders, as we've talked about in a previous episode, it's very hard to figure out exactly what the agenda of the people at this time was. It's probably not as clear-cut as Livy and Dionysius are making it out in terms of patricians versus plebeians. There's definitely some nuances here, and these groups are not quite as solidified as Dionysius and Livy are making out because we're talking about the early Republic here. We're talking about these groups still still emerging, still forming. There are changes going on which we're probably not privy to at this point in time. So it's not as simplistic with that. Um, but also, there is a temptation to, for them to retroject stuff from their own time and stuff from the later part of the conflict orders and put it back into this time. And really what we need to try and do is to try and see it a bit more clearly in terms of what exactly were the objectives at this particular time because they, of course, didn't know that they're living through this thing called the conflict of the orders. Like, no. <laughs> this is obviously a label we've given it later on. We're connecting the dots here. So really at this point in time, this law about the laws is about protection, I think, you know, about making sure that they have... Um, there is obviously a little bit more equality in terms of how how the state is going to be run. And I think that has to do with the fact that, as we mentioned before, the patricians do have a particular connection to religious authority and, and priesthoods and, and all of that kind of stuff. Um, so I think they're after, they are after protection and they are after clarity. It's not that they don't know how anything works. Obviously they do. And, and that's partly because of the nature of living in this time a lot of stuff would have been oral a lot of contracts and deals and that kind of stuff probably would have been oral people would have seen business being done in the open parents would have trained children um patrons are obliged to uh, you know provide legal advice to their clients um and so it's not that nobody knows anything but it is about that that protection from the abuse of the position of extraordinary power that these very elite people, who we call the patricians, seem to have under their control. And it seems that the plebeians are right to fight for it. Absolutely. Because the patricians are very resistant. Oh, for which sure. Which can yeah. only mean that power is being abused. Well, and, and, and as I said previously, the patricians' answer is always no. <laughs> because they're very good at, at, uh, at sticking together and just maintaining this attitude of, no, we see nothing. But I think we're about to reach a really pivotal moment. Mm -hmm. And uh, it includes Titus Romilius. Okay. <laughs> I wasn't expecting you to say that. I know. Neither was I. And yet here we are. Dionysus of Halicarnassus. Thank you so much for your history. Um, so we've got this proposal, which appears to be about the codification of the laws, yeah. as far as we can tell. That seems to be the inference here. There's a lot of discussion. It's all glossed over uh, until Dionysus of Halicarnassus decides that he wants to bring in the perspective of Titus Romilius. Okay. <laughs> Everybody seems surprised because Romilius comes out in support 
of this law. Okay, I feel like there's a caveat there. He's not just saying, I support it. It's, I support it, but... Not even. Really? This is a massive turnaround. Okay. We get into one of these rhetorical moments, which Dionysus, how Canassus loves, where he puts a speech into somebody's mouth. Um, but he comes, he comes onto the stage and he's like, all right, you know, you don't need my backstory. You know my backstory. It's a tale of woe. <laughs> um, but what you need to know is that I have always been with the patricians. I side with you guys. Yeah. You are the strong party. Yes. You know, and I exalt the aristocracy. I do. And I have despised the plebeians for my entire career. So far, (laughs) nothing has shocked me. (laughs) But I have learned, um, having been chastised by my own misfortunes and having learned at great cost that your power is less than your will, I can no longer entertain the same sentiments. Wow, he's a changed man. <laughs> yeah. yeah, and it's like, you weren't powerful enough to save me. And I think that means something around here has got to change. Whoa. And he's like, I'm just another example of another patrician who's been dragged through the mud because you guys cannot maintain absolute power. Okay. And so we've got to have a look at this. It's like, it's in your power to correct what lies in the future. And so other patricians don't suffer the same misfortune. Mm-hmm, so mm-hmm. I'm urging you, as a statement of pragmatism, that you're going to have to change. Again, <laughs> none of this is in my account. <laughs> this is just incredible. I feel like this is why Titus Romilius has been built up so much in Dionysius' narrative. For because sure. he wants to give us a way in through speechifying yeah. to understand how the Romans are. And we have to keep in mind all the time that his purpose is to explain the Romans to the Greeks. True, 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 true. Do they understand the Romans? Not at all. Um, (laughs) Do they want to understand what's going on? Kind of. Uh, Boy, do I have a book for you. Um, But these speeches are a way of unfolding some of the developing logic that might be underlying the Roman system. Mm. And what we get in this moment is Romilius advocating a policy of political pragmatism, which Rome in the late Republic is famous for. Yes. By that point, you know, it's about the practical necessity. That's true. So this is allowing a way into thinking about political pragmatism as the purview of the patricians Mm. and something that they willingly adopted in order to retain their position of power. Yeah, because this happens very differently in my account. So basically, (laughs) in my account, the tribunes are obviously advocating for the law about the laws. Not to a crazy point, you know, not... doesn't seem like it's a fever pitch point. Um, and then after the after the trials of the previous consuls, the new consuls aren't going to back down, even though they've just seen the example of these other two patricians who have fallen afoul of plebeian people. They aren't going to let this law go through. And the tribunes are like, nah, yeah, okay. We'll be a bit more reasonable, okay? Let's Let's just talk, you know. Man to man. Let's forget about all this nonsense, you know? Political political conflict. What is it really getting us, guys? I mean, look, I'm just, we're just spitballing here. If what we're putting forward isn't your jam, 
tell me what it is you're into. I mean, maybe, maybe, and this is just a crazy idea, guys, maybe we have some people come forward from the patricians and some people come forward from the plebeians and together we work out something that we're all happy with, guys. That just sounds way too much like democracy. This is <laughs> never going to fly. Well, this is where this is where it all comes crashing down. The patricians say... No. <laughs> <laughs> this is a real surprise, yes, well, I have to not, say. Not entirely, not entirely. They, they say, look, that's not a bad idea about a group of people coming together and discussing, you know, this whole situation with laws and what we're going to do. However, you can think again, pal, if we're letting plebeians anywhere near this process. <laughs> I think it'll just be a group of us patricians having a powwow. They, they literally say that. They say no one's coming out with any laws apart from us patricians, and that is that okay so you can take it or leave it and this, great chat <laughs> and this is what they agree on oh what? they 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 finally i guess they finally see there's some sort of progress at least the patricians are agreeing that there needs to be a codification of laws okay they're just they're just not going to push the point that they're going to be involved in the process in a you know in in the higher up party that will be just you know discussing the laws and that kind of thing i feel like i should pause there like i've got one final thing to say yeah and i don't want to i, I feel like i'm gonna be jumping ahead too much if i get into i it think now. our narratives are really starting to deviate because romilius okay. is romilius is not finished with his speech yet oh sorry and, i thought and, he was done oh yeah. no and okay. things are about to take a turn yeah um, okay yeah so he basically says look political pragmatism is the way to go sure um you know doing the same thing and getting the same results the definition of insanity yeah you know, all of that kind of stuff yeah um you know we keep getting banished. We keep getting punished. Do we want that? No. I think what oh, we really... Come on. Have they really <laughs> suffered that much? Apparently they have. Yeah. <laughs> um, apparently that it's a real problem. And he's like, so, you know, why don't we um, try something different? Why don't we go and talk to some states that actually do seem to run well and go and seek some advice? And you know who I think we should talk to? I think we should talk to the Greeks. Okay, this is the bit of detail I was holding back on. This is the detail I was holding back on. In my account, after they reach this agreement of sorts, they send out a little band made up of Spurius Posthumius, Albus Aulus Manlius, and Publius Sulpicius Camerinus to Athens in order to make a copy of the laws of Solon and to learn about the Athenian institutions, customs, etc., and to study the Greek states. <laughs> mm. Ah, fascinating. Yes. yes, because I'm like, as far as like Dionysius of Halicarnassus is concerned and the things that he's trying to do with his narrative, this feels like a very self-serving speech. Being like, let's talk to the Greeks about how they do it. And you can imagine the Greek reader being like, finally. <laughs> <laughs> well, look, it, modern academics have suggested, <laughs> obviously this is something that pops up in both of our accounts, um, modern academics have suggested that this is obviously an attempt on part of the Romans to link their very big first codification of their laws, the Twelve Tables, which is what is coming at the end of this process. I know you guys are probably sick of hearing that, but it's coming. It's coming. <laughs> it's coming. Um, they know they're heading towards this, this point, and so they want to associate Rome with the very famous law code of Solon. You know, which is like the one of the most famous Greek 
yeah, set of laws. Yes, yeah. it's very famous, and yeah. uh, clearly, its fame has spread as far as uh, the realms of Italy and the little backwater that is Rome itself. Yeah, the slight, <laughs> the slight, the reason why pe- most people think, most modern academics think that this is made up, listeners, is that they don't need to travel all the way to Greece in order to learn about Greek customs and institutions Just because... Travel the, south. Yeah, exactly. The Greeks are already in Italy. <laughs> there is a, yeah, there yeah. is a bunch of Greek colonies already there, which may be how they learned about it in the first place. But maybe somebody wanted a trip to Athens. I'm just saying most monarch academics don't think that this actually happened. I don't know. I could see myself going on a summer trip, uh, <laughs> heading over to Greece, checking out the laws, you know, coming back. Oh, that's a well, nice tan. I mean, again, it's hard to see this in the bigger picture, but what, what I'll talk about in a bit more detail when we finally get to the 12 tables themselves is that there is also a bit of parallel narrative structure going on. Because the law code of Solon is is particularly famous because it was a lot less harsh, particularly on the everyday person, than the previous law code, which supposedly was set down by Draco, where we get obviously the term draconian law from, which was apparently very, very severe. Uh, and there's this whole bigger process in terms of the political journey that Greece took. Um, and it seems as though our, our ancient accounts are loosely structuring the journey of Rome to resemble that of Greece at this point in time. And the codification of laws is just a part of that journey. It, it won't really make sense for me to go into it right now, so I'm not going to go into the, the huge detail of it. But, um, but once we get to the 12 tables, you'll see how there are certain parallels to what has happened in Greek history and what they're now saying is happening in Roman history. Yeah, and this is going to be a sort of a, an interesting journey because mm. Rome is interested in defining itself in particular ways. And this is one of the ways in which it's now choosing to define itself. Whether we, men were sent to Athens to check out the law code or not yeah. is kind of a, a side point to the yeah. fact that historians in the late Republic and the early imperial period are writing an account where Rome is clearly attached in particular ways to the Greek law style. Yes. Um, so we have um, Romilius giving us this, like, sort of like, we need to travel to Greece mm. uh, as, like, this uh, idea that's come out of nowhere. But it's clearly not an idea that's come out of nowhere mm. because immediately the consuls step out and support his opinion, and apparently their pe- speeches have been prepared. Okay. Uh, yeah, so they knew that was coming. Mm-hmm. And then we have Sicius come out, and he praises Romilius. Um, oh, very nice. Yeah. guys. Yeah, for changing his opinion and, you know, uh, prioritizing the public good over private grudges. And he says, look, I think, you know, he's shown his worth as a Roman citizen. I think we should cancel his fine. <gasps> Whoa. What? Whoa. <laughs> what? <laughs> Yeah. Oh my yeah. lord. Yeah, let's let's reconcile this. I mean, he's shown like great Roman spirit. Let's, you know, he doesn't need to pay the fine. Uh, anyway, the rest of the tribunes come forward and they agree with this. So Sicius has clearly like bound them all up and be like, look, I think you should get him off this thing. That, that seems like a good idea. Romilius, however, then has this chance to come out and be like, no, no, I have to pay the fine because it's already been consecrated to the gods. And if I don't pay it, the balance 
uh, relationship with the gods will be out of sync and that will be a huge issue. So I really need to pay the fine. So it's a bit of like a, oh no, no, I please, you know, I insist. Oh no, I couldn't no, possibly. No, please, no, please, please, oh, please. I just, just, no, no, no I, uh, I, I insist. It's I me. couldn't possibly, well, no. Oh, come no, on. No. Oh, shut <laughs> you. Uh, yeah, it's one of those situations. Um, and then we get this reference to the three guys. So we've got, you, you mentioned them already. Um, yeah. But I just want to emphasize that they were all consuls uh, previously. Yeah. So we've got this consular party. Spurious Postumius was consul in 466. Um, we're not sure about the first name of Sulpicius. It could be Publius or Servius. Mm-hmm. Apparently our sources don't agree. Yeah. Consul of 461, question mark. <laughs> um, and Aulius Manlius, consul of 474. So some old bigwig consuls yeah. um, all bound together. They're set up with some triremes, apparently. Okay. Who knew? Yeah. Um, and off they go at the public expense <laughs> on a sojourn to Greece. A fact-finding <laughs> mission. How <laughs> delightful. Yeah. Yes. For, yes. And they, they had appointments um, on their ships sufficient to display the dignity of the Roman Empire. <laughs> I don't even know what that would be. I don't know. I mean, they're really fighting for their lives right now, so it's hard to say. Um, But that's essentially the end of 454. I have one final, incredibly critical detail to wrap up this year, Dr. G. Just wait for it. I'm on my edge of my seat. Livy thinks we should wrap this year up by noting no foreign wars happened in this year. (laughs) Just in case you were wondering... Ah, yes, no, it was definitely about domestic stuff, wasn't it? Yeah. All on the home front. Yeah, definitely. All right, Dr. G. Well, not quite as wild a ride, but still pretty surprising stuff that's coming out of this this time period. Yeah, look, I've got some questions about Dionysus of Halicarnassus right now. Historian or just a fantasy teller? (laughs) Nonetheless, that brings us to uh, the partial pick. So, Dr. G, the Romans in this category have a chance to win. They have a chance to win 50 eagles out of five different categories, each ranked out of 10. The first of which is military clout. Well, even though we've been talking a lot about war, there hasn't actually been any war yes. in this. Can I mean, you Liv- demonstrate clout if you don't go to war? Livy was very explicit about that. Yes. <laughs> that was a very important detail. So, <laughs> that unfortunately, is a zero. that is a zero. Yeah. Diplomacy. Well, again, I don't feel like there's a lot in my account, but I feel like there is some internal diplomacy in your account. I do, I do think there is some diplomacy. I think it's a real shame that Livy seems to suggest that it's just the patricians getting together to have a chat. When it seems in Dionysius' account, it's definitely something that's brought about through the trial process that leads uh, to broader discussion. Look, I, I think the implication of Livy's account is definitely that the trials have, have led to discussion. But in his account, I think it's more the plebeian tribunes seem to be trying a different strategy of being less aggressive about it and coming about it a different way. And then they have to agree to the patricians taking the lead, which, to be honest, I mean, wouldn't you really be expecting that if you were them? I mean, were they doing that strategy of asking for way more than they wanted? (laughs) Well, I mean... It, basically, they were asking for their ideal situation because if the patricians said, yes, great, you've got plebeians and patricians talking about the formation of the law. If the patricians say no to all of the conditions, but they still come back with something, well, 
You still won something. It's I mean, better than nothing. They have. I mean, they in my account, even though I know it's a bit, it's a bit less detailed than yours, and, and therefore a little less anticlimactic with the characters and all. At the end of the day, they have actually won something, which is the process has begun for codifying mm. the laws, and that is something. I feel like that's a bit of like a five out of ten. I think so too. All right, so five it is. Expansion. Nope. Nope. <laughs> It's a big no. I feel like it's been a really long time since the Romans <laughs> captured any more territory. But again, as we flagged, this does seem to have been a low point for Rome in the middle of this century. Yeah. They're, they're going to go on to expand, don't you? Yeah. Uh, Virtus. Huh. Well, hmm. So again, I feel a little trapped with this one in that uh, Romilius has kind of got some good things going on in this episode. Like not not like military stuff, obviously, but no. There's... But would it be considered weird to us? I don't think so. I mean, that's the thing. He's he's being a he's being a good citizen through his actions. Mm. But it's is not, it yeah. weird to us, or is it just he's not being quite just... as much <laughs> of a twat? <laughs> Yes, congratulations, you weren't an arsehole. Yeah. Um, yeah, so I'm not going to give him heaps of points for that. Um, but there is a sense in which, hmm, yeah, I feel like Weetwas isn't really on the table. Like, Weetwas is really related to, like, aspects of what are considered deep sense of Roman masculinity. Yeah. And I don't know that we're seeing that at the moment. No, I, I, I feel like he's just being less annoying. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so unfortunately, like and even, even Sikius, I mean... He's not really. He, think, he's doing stuff, but it's not really weird to us. No, it's no, not weird to us. No. All right, that leaves us with the final category of the citizen score. Well, I do feel like this is not a total loss because of what we just talked about before. The fact that there there is a step being taken to codify the laws, even though it does seem also like a bit of a buying time strategy in a way for the patricians to just get a free holiday to And also a summer joint! <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it does seem like just a time delaying strategy. We're all going on a summer holiday. <laughs> uh, no more talking about the laws for a year or two. <laughs> Amazing. <laughs> yeah, at the same time, uh, I feel like it it's not too bad. I mean, Sikius, in your account at least, is And my... I think importantly for citizens, we have to keep in mind they didn't go to any wars. Well, this is also true. Yeah, so no wars... There's no mention of fields being despoiled by Roman enemies. <laughs> they like pushed off a voting branch. No, they like Sicius, and he is their rep- one of their representatives. Mm. So I, I feel like it might be a four. Well, at least maybe yeah, five. I think. Maybe. Okay, five. Yeah. All right, well, in spite of the fact that I have been sitting here with my calculator, <laughs> I don't think we're really going to need it for this one. Yeah, yeah. yeah. What is, do they get? It is a grand total of five. <laughs> sorry, 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 sorry. Correction, sorry. I was looking at the number five and I was just thinking about it. It's a grand total of ten. Uh, ten golden eagles. Again, though, I feel like I should say to listeners, that makes it sound like a really terrible year. But it was actually a really good year. It actually was. Things are progressing now. I feel like after the 12 tables, we might need to slightly tweak our rating system because it seems like when there's a peaceful year... It's terrible for the Romans. It's terrible score-wise, which actually isn't necessarily... But maybe that's that's the real key here, is that a terrible score means that good things have happened. Yeah, that's And true. a high score is an indication that stuff has... Shit has hit the proverbial. <laughs> true, true. I love the fact that you left out the word fan. <laughs> it's still swore. <laughs> 
Oh dear. All right, listeners. Well, thank you very much for joining us. We are edging ever closer to a very big moment for the remnants, I promise you. <laughs> it's very exciting. We'll catch you next time. Thank you for tuning in to another episode of The Partial Historians. It's Dr. G here, and I'm sending a big thank you from both Dr. Rad and myself to our patrons, whose contributions really help us get into the technical side of things a little bit more. They can really take the credit for the precision uh, that we're bringing to the table when it comes to sound quality and sound effects. So without further ado, I'd like to say thank you to Joel, Sharon, Roman, Savannah, Sean, Theodore, Mark, Paul, Tamara, Jacob, Adri, Justine, Nick, Zara, Dana, CW, Gunnar, and last, bringing up the rear, but with a big finale when it comes to the patron name, Thank you so much to the patron formerly known as Augustus Rules, Tiberius Drools. Catch you next time.